Hi, my name is Mike McFall. I beat the often path by starting as a minimum wage barista, and 28 years later, I'm running one of the, I think, to be top two or three coffee brands in America. I also don't have the, the traditional trappings. Uh, I try to avoid those as much as I can, uh, and I'm trying to live just the most normal, normal life possible. Joining us today is Mike McFall, the co-founder and co-CEO of Big B Coffee. Mike's story is truly fascinating. In 1995, he and his friend decided to make a coffee chain, and their simple agreement has blossomed into one of America's largest coffee chains, a franchise operation with over 350 locations. Now, it's clear to me that Mike is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur, and in this episode, he tells me something that I'm truly envious of, that he always has an innate sense that everything will just work out, and he doesn't suffer from the kind of crippling anxiety that keeps you awake at 3am, wondering if your life is going to hopelessly spiral out of control, leaving you lost and all alone. I'm sure you're just like that, right? I know I am. <coughs> Sorry, I had something lodged in my throat there. Well, even though his path has been slow, methodical, and steady, everything kind of has appeared to work out for this remarkable human. And he's documenting his unique, human-forward approach to business in a series of books that you can now buy. I know I'm about to get schooled in this conversation, and if you and a buddy have ever thought about building something cool, well, you are too. So here is Mike McFall. I'm Ross Palmer, and this is Beat the Often Path. Welcome to the show, Mike. I have to say, your name is really cool. It makes me feel like Die Hard or something like that. You know, you have such a, a solid American name, you know? Have you ever been the hero of any action movies that you know of? Uh, no, but wouldn't that be fun? And I'll tell you, um, uh, being a superhero is one of my, one of my long-term goals. That's the dream. Yeah, in the next couple decades, <laughs> that's the only way to go up from here, I think. Uh, and another little interesting tidbit. So this is something that you and I definitely agree on because I read a fact about you. We discussed this, that you drink up to 14 espresso shots per day. I myself am in the same camp. Uh, why are you a coffee addict? I know why I am, but I'm curious as to why you do. Well, it's comfort food for me. And, yeah. you know, I... Um, I can't imagine not having it in my life. And, it, it, you know, 14 shots of espresso sounds like a lot, of course, but it actually isn't that much caffeine. So, I mean, I don't have the science and, or the, the data in right in front of me, but it's probably equivalent of drinking three 16-ounce drip coffee uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, beverages a day. So it's not outrageous. That's the camp I'm in. I fill up a French press at the start of every day, knock it down, and then start on number two. So that's the beginning of my day. I, I, I'm unlike other people in that I, I hit the ground running at 7.30. I don't have any kind of wake-up period. I just start, and coffee is what Watch. helps me do that. I just like, boink, and then here we go. Uh, but yeah, your, your biography, you've had some incredible twists and turns, many different things that I wanted to jump in. I mean, obviously, your arc is, from one sense, the American dream, right? Starting as a barista and then ending up here. But you've had a, a few other things, like you have a co-CEO, you have a partner that you've helped build this business with. The scale is tremendous. You have, I think, 350-plus locations as of the last time I checked. So how did you get from there to here? Well, when I spend time with groups, and that's oftentimes the question that I get, and, you know, if I had to sum it up in one word, my partner and I have been able to do this uh, and gotten the company to where it is today. And, you know, we, we would argue that maybe success, we haven't crossed that threshold yet. Um, and I can explain more on that later. But uh, I would say the one word is focus. And we've woken up every single morning focused on selling one more cup of coffee tomorrow than we did today. And, you know, <laughs> it's 28 years. And so, you know, we've taken a longer term perspective on our business. And, you know, this wasn't started scale it, liquidate it, and move on. This is something we want to build and be super proud of at the end of the day. And my partner and I aligned. This isn't about, quote, getting wealthy. Uh, there's way too more, more to it than that. Mm. 
Well, I know your objective is to sell one more cup of coffee, which is why it's incredibly gracious that as part of your contractual obligation for appearing on this podcast, you've agreed to donate free coffee for life from me from any Big B location. Very generous of you. Um, I'm not going to help your bottom line with that. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but all right, so you're a barista, you're a young kid, you're thinking of ways to presumably grow in your career. How on earth did you come up with the idea that maybe you could own a store or a chain or any of what you've done? Well, this really wasn't my path. And if I could go back and be in my brain 28 years ago, I was more headed down the path to be an academic uh, go on, study, um, get a PhD, which I've always thought is like the coolest thing in the world to have a PhD, right? And and, and then write and read and teach, and, and that was going to be my life. That was my mom. My mom was a professor at Michigan State University, and it's a heck of a life, you know? Uh, so, uh, but then what happened was I fell in love with being a barista, and that's that sounds crazy, but truly, I love showing up to work, making people happy every morning. And, you know, I didn't really know I had this hospitality thing inside of me, um, but I loved it. And so then when my business partner approached me about taking more responsibility, maybe becoming a manager, I, you know, I didn't, it wasn't on my radar, but I was like, yeah, like, and then we went, there's kind of a, in our history, there's this lore about this walk that Bob and I went on. And Is this the shaman was, in the woods uh, walk? It, no, no, different, different Oh, okay, story. we have multiple walks. Oh. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> and so we ended up, um, we sat down interview style. This is March of 97, and neither one of us are very good at sitting down and being at a table. And so it was a beautiful spring day. We popped up. We went for a four-hour walk around East Lansing, talking about everything. At the end of that walk, we shook hands and agreed to start a company together. And we didn't really have any of the detail. Uh, but the next morning, I walked over to the university. I had a research position there uh, in preparation to go back to graduate school. And I resigned and threw myself at this thing hundred percent and really haven't looked back. So you made the decision first and then you switched. You didn't have any kind of safety net or anything in place. You just made the decision and cut ties and went for it, not knowing if it would succeed at all. No, nah, not at all. I mean, I wow. had a lot of faith in what my partner had built in that first store. We had one store at that point. Uh, you know, he... He came at the coffee industry from a very different perspective. I mean, he was a high-volume restaurateur, and that's what he was going to build, high-volume co uh, high coffee shops. But then the other thing is, in 1997, when that walk happened, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what was going on in coffee. <laughs> so, you know, that's – I'd left, and um, – but, you know, honestly – so much of it was, I just love the work. And then that's that simple. And and some of the messaging that you have, you talk about, I think you referenced in, in part of your bio, uh, Death of a Salesman from Arthur Miller. What is everybody searching for? Love. You talk about love a lot. Is that something that you still feel? Love of people, love of humanity. And is that something that you developed at that time? You really didn't know that that was a part of you before you began? As a barista? It's a complicated transition or complicated evolution. You know, I wrote my book series purposefully, and it's a three-book series. The first two books are done. Uh, the first book was written from the mentality of and the ethos of startup. What does it take? From an attitudinal perspective, uh, you know, from an expectation uh, perspective, what does it take to be successful in startup? And then book two picks up when you're in the late stage of that grind 
which is startup, and you're still in that bootstrapping entrepreneurial phase, and then you need to transition into becoming a leader. And it's a very different mentality. And one of the things that worries me is, and the reason I wrote multiple books and made them separate books was, I worry that if you talk to me today, 28 years later, about startup and you listen to the stuff that I'm espousing today, I'm not sure that works in startup. And so I wanted to be very clear about that this is a linear progression. And, and that progression to develop into a leader is arduous and few make that transition from entrepreneur to to leader uh, but that was uh, important to me is that i separated and i've heard and i take it as a great compliment that people hear two very different voices in the two books and i'm like perfect because that was my intent can you shed some light on what that difference is in your opinion between the entrepreneur and the leader what does a leader mean to you well First, the entrepreneur, you know, you, you have no resources. You're uh, scratching and clawing for every bit of momentum and sales and revenue. And and I think in many ways it does take sort of a obsessive, maniacal figure to take something from a cold start to it, it, where you consider it sustainable. But then all of that stuff that made you successful as an entrepreneur, that's the stuff that gets in the way of becoming a more powerful leader. And so that's the progression. That's the arc. And so you have to unlearn and then bring in and add new and different capability. And so <laughs> that's why I say it's a really, it's a great question. I love the question because uh, it gets kind of right into the root of the difficulty. I mean, it it is, a, and it's a long process. And that's the other thing that I just, I need to preach and talk about, you know, because when you're developing as a leader, you're oftentimes pulled back into the minutia, the minute by minute, the the grind, and you know some of that obsessive stuff still is present and is probably necessary. But over time, that becomes less and less of you as a leader, and eventually, it should become like pretty much zero part of you. Well, I do want to discuss that because I'm fascinated what you think leadership means now. Let's rewind to when you were just starting out. Obviously, you said there was one store, now 350 plus. So how did you go from expanding that one store to many different locations? Was that a slow process, a fast process? Was it something that took many years to decide to do, or did it happen organically? Well, it was a slow process. I, I, you know, th this thing hasn't exactly been a rocket ship. <laughs> 28 years is a long time. Uh, and and so in the middle of it, we were always going slower than we wanted. But we stuck with it. And we kept grinding. We kept growing. And now today, it you know, from a certain vantage point, we look like we built a successful company. And but it man, it took a long time. And, you know, and we were impatient. Did you look up to anybody at that time? Were you looking up to Ray Kroc or any models of people? Who, who was your inspiration? Or were you looking up to Starbucks? Like, how did you decide that this was the path? Because I don't think the franchise path is for everybody. For this type of business, maybe it's more logical. Well, we had Mary Ellen Sheets who started Two Men in a Truck uh, here in Lansing, Michigan area. She was gracious. She spent a lot of time with us, answered a lot of our questions, uh, set the right expectations. Um, so, so she was definitely a mentor of ours. Um, but then, yeah, reading, 
yeah, I just, I read them all. You know, I, I remember the book uh, that Bill Rosenberg, the founder of Dunkin' Donuts wrote. I'm not sure he wrote it, but it was a great Somebody read did. about franchising. Uh, Ray Kroc, McDonald's. I mean, I've read all, all that stuff. And so I write, there's a whole chapter in Grow about the importance of reading and not getting your, you know, opinions formed through 30 second to one minute videos on social media. Like we got to do as leaders, we got to do deep dives into these worlds, uh, biographies, but then, you know, all the amazing books that have been written out there and we have to do deep dives, you know, and that's important to me. And I, when people tell me they, they don't read, I'm like, how, how can you be a leader if you're not reading? Yeah. Speaking of which, can you distill your entire life philosophy into 30 seconds or less, please? For TikTok? <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm thinking about joking. it. <laughs> I'm I was curious like, where this goes. Do you have it? <laughs> I was going to give it a whirl. <laughs> well, you may as well try at this point. Well, I think it's something like life's meant to be an adventure, you know, um, and we uh, figuring out the impact that you want to have on the world is critical to doing anything important and meaningful. Well, I think you did it. That's a great summary. And we will chop that out with no hint of irony. That's going to be a social <laughs> clip because uh, it's beautiful. And I completely agree. So were you a reader? When did you decide to start reading? When did you take that on board? Always? No, you know, I was never a good student. Uh, because if you tell me to read a book and I've got to do it, and then I got to answer some essay question, like, no way, I'm not doing it. Uh, but I've always read. Um, and I don't know where that came from. My mom's a big reader. Uh, and I, I was really fortunate to go to school, college, with a bunch of people who took school seriously, took learning seriously, and were, were they were all le uh, readers, you know? And so it just, it sounds really dorky. I mean, we partied too, <laughs> but we, we were also did a ton of reading. And, and um, I think that it's just over time, you just realize the value. Like I, I, Read Nelson Mandela's autobiography. I mean, yeah, so he great. wrote it. So that, great. Oh, man. Like, if you get to sink into this guy's head for right. 600 pages. The Long Walk to Freedom, right? Or is that the title? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant book. I had the same thing. So I'm a, by my major, I have a dual major in English literature and film, and I went to a liberal arts college. And I was forced to read so much for four years. They would say, here's Don Quixote. You need to have it finished by Thursday. It's Monday now. I was reading hundreds of pages per night, obviously with all of the other things that are going on in college. So I got extremely burned out on reading. By the time I graduated, I didn't want to see another book for several years. I would listen to audiobooks, but I didn't open another a physical book for many years after I graduated from college. But then I had a similar awakening probably five or six years after I graduated where I went back to physical books. And at first I started at the library, but then I realized I couldn't make markings. As an English literature major, you're taught to write on every page and put all kinds of sticky notes and highlighters and I had this complicated system. And I thought, I can't do this with library books. So I recognized I need to start buying physical books again. And I've been on that wave ever since. And I love buying even used books. They're so cheap. Stores like thriftbooks.com, book resellers, you can get almost any book if you need for $5. Yeah. In decent enough condition, and it has definitely changed my life for sure. So I'm completely you know, one of with the you things, there. I've got a rule that I won't put a book down. So if I start it, I'm going all the way, and it Ooh, not times, everybody shares that view. Interesting. Uh, okay. At times, it's arduous. Like, oh my, yeah. I've gotten into some brutal books, and I <laughs> yeah. just power through because I don't want to. I hear about people all the time picking up books, reading a few chapters, not being inspired, putting it down. And people I people even advise and, that 
you know, people teach that sometimes. That's if crazy. If you don't like the first 10 pages, put no, it down. No, 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 no. Because the thing is, the last couple of chapters is where they always bring you the good stuff. So if you're putting a book down 100 pages in, you're missing out. And and I think it's so arrogant to think you can read 100 pages of a 300-page book and think you've got it out you figure it out. And it's like, that. Eh, you don't have to figure it out. So that's another rule I live by. It's painful. Oh, at times. <laughs> sure. You know, I get myself into you some You pick up Anna Karenina and you think, oh my God, what do I got to do? Uh, <laughs> hundreds of pay love. War and peace. Uh, so if you could break down the, the pie chart of the types of books that have been influential in your life and career, would it be, for example, mostly biography, mostly nuts and bolts, how-to business books, philosophy? What types of books do you read and how do they impact you? I would say a third is biographies. Um, I, would, I don't read any fiction at all. Me neither. Um, yeah. and, and I've been getting more into fiction with audiobooks, uh, just like entertainment in the car. But, and then I would say a third are books on leadership and management, uh, and not really how to on business, but you know the good the good ones. Uh, like thinking <laughs> process and mindset. And- yeah, there's some there multipliers by Liz Wiseman, just brilliant. Um, it's stuff like that. Um, uh, Crucial Conversations by Susan Scott. Um, the, anyway, I could go on. But but these books that are written by people and, you know, the, the thing is, there's so much of the business genre is written by either academics who have never been there, never done it. They bring True. value. It's True. not bad stuff. Or it's written by people with nine-figure net worths looking back on their career through rose-colored glasses. Yeah. Awesome, entertaining, like yeah. so watching a movie, but there's not a lot of value. What I tried, what I'm trying to do is write these books while I'm in it, while I'm doing it, uh, and I hope that can bring a little bit more value to people. That, to me, that's the most frustrating part of those nine-figure books is that they skip over the most important part. And that's part of the reason that I do this show, because I want to get to the most important part. Like, you read Warren Buffett's book, The Snowball, and it's like he had a paper route, and he was really good, and then he opened up a gumball machine and a few laundromats. After he made his first million, he was... And then just the rest of the book is about that. I was like, but wait a minute. What happened between the gumball machines and the first million? Yeah. That's the part that I want to know. How do you get from there to there? Because obviously, yeah, once you've already got something going, it's much easier. Well, I mean, you may debate that, but <laughs> that's the part that I think no, a lot no, of people I are agree. But I think for me, I don't know where I got it from, but I never really worried that I was going to struggle to pay the bills or have money for retirement. Or, you know, like that was never a concern of mine. I, I kind of always knew that it was going to be okay. Uh, and, and I think I'm like gritty enough to know that whatever happens, I'll figure it out. (laughs) You know, and that came, I don't even know where that comes from, but I think a lot of that was my dad. My dad's pretty gritty. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll get in there and do whatever it takes, whatever situation. Uh, and you know, and I also believe that so much of success is how you treat people, right. uh, being a good person, you know, stuff that they don't really write about in business books. Oh. You ever read How to Win Friends and Influence People? That's one oh, of my yeah. all-time favorites. I oh, think that's yeah. I, that's the closest thing I have to like a business Bible. I think I, everybody should reread that once per year. That's what I'm talking about. That yeah. That's a great example of a book that brings you these concepts that are really about life. It's not about being good at business. It's being a, mm-hmm. about being a good person and taking care of people and, and interacting with people in appropriate ways. Uh, that's a great example. Uh, I think what you just described is your skill. I can recognize that that skill is so important to you, but I think that's what a lot of people struggle with, that fear of the unknown. Now, 
in the moment, if you say something like, I know, I have faith in myself that whatever happens, I'll be gritty enough to solve that. Do you have moments like most of us do where it's three in the morning and suddenly you wake up and you doubt all of that and your heart is palpitating and you wonder whether that's true? Or can you honestly say, I've always genuinely had that core belief that everything would work out no matter what would happen? Yeah, I, I don't have the heart palpitating moments. Really? Never really have. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, I wish I could explain it, but you know, business has always been like a really cool, complicated game of monopoly, and there's always a solution. And I was never afraid to do the necessary work. And I tell people, like today, my my role and my position in the world has a little bit of glamour to it, co-CEO, you know, whatever. But I was a franchise salesman for 15 straight years. That's what I did. I had other you know, responsibilities, like I handled finance, I handled uh, legal, you know, I had other stuff that I was responsible for. But my core role, oops, my <laughs> core role was a franchise salesman. And I tell you that because that's not glamorous. And, but I knew that is what I had to do. And, and I did it. And um, I think, you know, I think the piece that people don't hear is 15 years. Right. How long you know? 15 years is. Yeah. But, you know, I, we, this business isn't my life either. Like, I got all kinds of stuff that I love to do. And so, you know, I did it. And But I also... Look forward to my beer league hockey team or hanging out with my parents or, you know, whatever it was. And so the business wasn't my only source of value in the world. And, and you know, being a salesman and was interesting. I loved the chase. I loved closing deals. Like, that was fun. This podcast is brought to you by my agency, Aloha. That's A-L-O-A a digital marketing agency that helps brands and nonprofits on a mission to improve the world tell their story. We do website prototyping, design, UI, UX, SEO, CRO, 3D design, video editing, commercial creation, 2D animation, industrial design, content management, learning management systems, and our roots are in e-commerce, managing and building extensive catalogs with hundreds or even thousands of products. In short, we do everything brands and nonprofits need to grow their digital presence with simple, transparent, monthly products pricing that you can just build a package it's super easy and figure out exactly what you need to grow learn more at aloha.agency that's a-l-o-a.agency and now back to the show you mentioned a little bit earlier that your business began with a handshake after a long walk do you think that that is itself lucky or were you both in the right state of mind because some people liken a business partnership to like a marriage if you get the wrong partner it all falls apart or you have dissent or disagreements between each other do you feel that you've been fortunate that you've been able to build such a business on the back of essentially a handshake agreement well there's a fallacy in the world about you you said they get the wrong partner yeah but there's no wrong partner if you're doing what you need to be doing in approaching that partner in a healthy way and bringing them the things they need and communicating about what you need, there's no wrong partner. And, you know, my partner and I, I mean, we drive each other crazy a little bit here and there, but we're both so committed to each other and each other's development that you make that partnership. You do. It has anything to do with the partner. And, you know, that's a perspective that I don't think too many people take in the world. Interesting. You don't think maybe you're doing all the work and then your buddy's over there drinking beer, playing video games all day, and you say, hey, we're 50%, but you're not doing as you're not as gritty as I am. <laughs> well, yeah, I've never lived that. Um, <laughs> but I... I don't know. I 
would think that I would understand that person and the relationship enough that I would never go into partnership with them. That's smart. Yeah. I don't know. Who knows? I'm, I, I've never been in that spot. Well, that's good. That's great. Yeah. Um, so what is this shaman in the woods <laughs> scenario? What happened yeah, there? Cool. <laughs> what is that part of the folklore? Talk about a, you know, this is a an actual path <laughs> that I was on. <laughs> so what happened was, you know, 2013, 14, maybe in, into 15, my partner and I were really starting to lose, lose um inspiration and motivation around the business. And so we've been talking about it and we kept going after the thinking of a traditional mindset. Like maybe we do an acquisition, maybe we start a new company or, you know, whatever it was, but the end result was always to grow the company more quickly. Well, we were in this place of, we were making money. We were fine financially. Uh, and so we both recognized that adding one more increment of value to our balance sheet wasn't going to bring us what we were looking for and wasn't going to inspire us. And I, I'm saying that story today real clean, like that's what we were talking about. That what? <laughs> that's a two-year, three-year <laughs> conversation of a mess, right? Just trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And then I went up north to northern Michigan. There's an island called South Manitou. It's a, you can only get to it by boat. And I went up there with my brother and my nine-year-old son at the time and just to get away. And we went out, and one of the days we took a walk around the island. And we were in the farthest point on the island, and on the beach, it's gorgeous. I look over, and there's a couple uh, huddled over a camp stove. I think they're making tea. I mean, I don't say anything to them. I don't interrupt. I just keep walking. But where we stayed there was communal campsites. So there's no retail on this island. There's no hotels or anything. You just camp. And so there were communal campsites where you shared a fire pit. Well, that night we were up making dinner and that very couple was part of our communal camp uh, fire. And they, they came up and sat down with us. Well, this guy, uh, Nathan Havey, uh, was talking to my brother about all of his work in this thing called conscious capitalism. And, you know, I wasn't really involved. I was hanging out with my nine-year-old. And the next morning on their boat ride back on Sunday, I handed him my card and I said, hey, I'd love to learn more about your work in conscious capitalism. So he um, called me a week later, five minutes into the conversation. I was like, we got to get my partner involved in this. And, and so we, in the conversation, and so we just, he came down to meet with us. Uh, we hired him and he walked us through a two and a half, three year process of finding our purpose and vision. And I'll say that again, it was two and a half to three years to find our purpose and vision. And it was crazy long and detailed and agonizing. And we had open meetings. So anybody that worked in our company, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. for one hour, we would show up and we would pick up and carry it forward. And so at the end of that, we settled on our purpose. And ever since then, Nathan Havey's been the shaman from the woods. Wow. What a cool Because he kind of just appeared out of nowhere. <laughs> So it's crazy. When you think of conscious capitalism, what does that mean to you? Well, I'm more of the stakeholder capitalism uh, mindset. So I love conscious capitalism. John Mackey and Raj Sisodia. What a book! And and they are they're brilliant. Um, what I what, the stakeholder capitalism model is what conscious capitalism is built upon, and it is that there are six equal stakeholders in every company, and that you have to take into account each stakeholder. You don't, you do your very very best not to have trade offs amongst stakeholders, and that's in contrast to 
Milton Friedman, what Milton Friedman espoused back in 1971, which was shareholder supremacy, that an organization had one task, and that was to increase shareholder value. And so what stakeholder capitalism says is that this the shareholder is one of six stakeholders. The others are the community in which you do business, the environment, your vendors, uh, the customer, your employees, and then the shareholder. I think I got all six. But anyway, so- Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) This is pretty much my life. But uh, so so the, the idea and concept is that the shareholder in a stakeholder driven business doesn't sacrifice in fact there's a whole bunch of data out there that stakeholder uh, led stakeholder driven organizations outperform the traditional shareholders the, the when you know companies that run uh, the shareholder value model only. And, you know, in my opinion, it is absolutely what we have to be doing in the future. Like, if we don't figure out what's going on for the environment, like, this is not, this is not rocket science. Yeah, <laughs> like, party's we gotta almost get over, better. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And uh, so anyway, that's the stakeholder model. Uh, it's what I advocate. I'm not really out there pounding the bricks on stakeholder capitalism, we've taken on the employee and uh, improving workplace culture. That's our our vision. Like we need to improve corporate culture in America. And we've got a whole bunch of stuff that we're trying to do and advocating and so on. But if we don't if we don't start taking care of the employee, the whole person, we're gonna we're gonna get left behind. Yeah, I completely agree. Great recommendations. I'm somewhat less far on my journey. I have about ten people that work for me in my little digital marketing organization. So I'm getting those growth pains, and I'm learning a little bit, not nearly the scale that you're at. But one of the pieces that I really latched onto doing research about you was how there was a middle point when you had grown. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you had a lot of employees who were either quitting all of a sudden or who were quiet quitting. So you faced a new set of challenges along the way that you never anticipated. And this is the kind of stuff that when people talk about growth, again, they don't really talk about very much. So what happened there and what did you decide to do based on what was happening? Well, there's one story. And I was I was in a meeting with our leadership team. And I had always built a big wall between me as a person and me as a manager of the business. And I just always thought that's what you did. That's what effective leaders did. And that you went in and you managed the business and you as a person was left at the door. And that's what I expected of all my people too. And so I had this moment where I realized that the people in that room, in that leadership meeting, were some of my primary relationships for my lifetime. And once I crossed that threshold, once I had that epiphany, because I always held them at a distance, because I always had this very traditional mindset that I was going to you know, build it, scale it, sell it, and go play who's richer at the country club, right? Like that was always my mindset. And I I realized that I would be leaving them in harm's way. And I would sell, I would cash out, and I'd leave them to their own devices with whoever I decided to sell to. And they weren't going to have any input into that. I was going to make the decision, you know. So, but then I realized that didn't have to be my outcome. And once I had that epiphany, everything changed. And it was powerful. That is awesome. I'm sure your employees recognized that and were very grateful did they tell you? Did they pull you aside and say, we've noticed a change in you or things feel different around here? <laughs> uh, it took many years for them to believe it. And I still think we have people that don't 
believe that we're genuine about this. And so, you know, it's a slow progression. And, uh, but I think at the end of the day, yeah, there's a, the key people, the people that I'm closest to, uh, Laura writes about it in the forward to grow about that transition. And it's pretty meaningful. Uh, at least it's meaningful to me, uh, what she talks about in there. And, you know, we're not, we're not done. We're not fully, <laughs> you know, but we're trying really hard. And this moment we're in right now is complicated because we're bringing in, we're growing so quickly. We're bringing in outside leaders who have expertise, but they're not, they're not immersed in our culture. And you can't bring somebody in from the outside and then tell them exactly how to do it. You've got to let them lead and you've got to let them bring their expertise. And so it's this big, constant evolution and it's it's complicated. Uh, and, you know, we're in the middle of that right now. We've just, it's only been five years that we brought in an outside leader. And then he has been building out our management team, our senior leadership team that report to him. And so we brought him in as a president five years ago, and he's building that out. But a little case in point, we handed him a, a chief development officer. We handed him a, a chief operating officer. And, and that was backwards you know, uh, and so he just, when we learned that, it took us, now they're both amazing, uh, but but there was some, there was a transition because they, in fairness, thought they were coming in to report to my partner and I. They weren't. They were coming in to report to John, and, and that transition, it was awkward. But now we just hired a, a CFO in the last month, and... Um, you know, I didn't talk to her one time before she took the job. Mm. And I have people that, I, that I'm close to that run big companies, and they're like, you didn't interview the new CFO? And I'm like, no, I didn't. Because the CFO reports to John. It's John's job to run the company, and it's his call. He has to assemble his team. Because if not, then it's not his and so that that's the stuff we're learning right now and it's it's heart wrenching and it is complicated but it's absolutely what we have to do so would you say then going back to our earlier point that leadership in your opinion is putting people in place and then trusting them to handle things and not being obsessed anymore not micromanaging or whatever you want to call it and saying i put you here for a reason and letting go of the outcome of that well, it's the only way. And if, yeah, it's the only way. So what we have to do is create a culture and that supports each individual in leadership and in any, in any area of the area of the business. Um, and then we have to support them in what they need. And they come to us for our support with very specific requests. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a huge transition for most. You know, I, um, yeah, it's, it's, and I'm, we're not done with it. Uh, it's still, it's still a struggle. Um, people still reach out to us directly, uh, but, you know, Give me, give me five years, five more years, and I think we'll be at a place where I can say it worked. So you once talked about the idea of trying to sell it. Do you still feel, do you feel that you'll be in this for the long haul now, whatever that means to you until you retire? Do you see life after this or is it just this, this is it. This is my mission. This is my project. Yeah, this is my project. Um, and we will... We're assembling a board now, and eventually 
the management team will report to that board and Bob and I will be on the board. I don't know if forever, but the, the, the thing about my partner and I too is that a hundred percent of the value I create in this company is going to be passed to a foundation that is supporting my beliefs and is doing continuing the work that I'm trying to do here. And so like my kids aren't getting anything, right? And oh. and they know it. Um and you know, that's my particular I don't I have a lot of opinions around that that children need to choose their own path. And at 50 years old, they got to be able to look look themselves in the mirror and say, what I did, successful or failure, is mine. And I'm giving them every opportunity. I mean, they're coming out of a privileged situation. They're getting every, you know, education, uh, their experiences, uh, getting to meet a lot of interesting people. But you know, we get to 18, 19, 20 years old, and it's like, okay, good luck. It's your turn. Yeah. That's uh, itself very profound. And we talked about our, our friend Warren Buffett, and, you know, love, very polarizing figure, very much of the shareholder mindset, not so much the stakeholder mindset historically, and dealing with generational wealth and what to do with all of this. That's a concept that's always fascinated uh, me from Andrew Carnegie. You know, do you do build buildings? Do you put it in funds? Do you eradicate malaria as Bill Gates is trying to do? What do you do with these things? And I love your perspective. I think that's awesome. Um, I am sure that it will benefit your children, even if there are moments where they might see that they might be upset at you about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they wouldn't mind it. You know, a little support financially, sure. but uh, at the end of the day, uh, whatever they do is theirs. I think that's very powerful and, and awesome and also the foundation. So you mentioned that you're not quite satisfied, which, of course, uh, strikes me as believable, or you feel like you're not quite there yet. Do you think you'll ever feel that you're there, or is this a perpetual uphill climb? And what are you missing, or what would you like to see in the next five, ten years? What do you think you need to feel like, now I'm really there? <sighs> you know, we've always had the mentality, my partner and I, that we're just getting started. So here we are 28 years in. You're like, let's get, go. We're just getting started. You yeah. know, the interesting work is really starting to happen. I think that, well, I don't know. I don't have any. Isn't that crazy? I can't tell you what will happen to make me go, because so much of it is about learning and growing and improving. I had a student ask, I teach a class here uh, in Ann Arbor and on entrepreneurship, and I had a student ask me, why, why, do, why do entrepreneurs, why is everybody so obsessed with growth? And pretty simple question, and it took me back. I didn't have an answer. I went to her the next week, and I said, I think I've got an answer. It's not an obsession with growth. It's an obsession with trying to improve and get better. Mm. Growth is an, is an outcome of that mentality. Most of the successful entrepreneurs I know, they just want to get better. They just want to improve. They want to bring more value. They want to, and so that is the obsession. It's not about 25% growth rates. It's about constantly improving. So I generally don't know where the end of this path is for me. I don't. I, you know, I dream of things that are crazy, <laughs> you know, and like I think of a grassroots movement where people, it, leadership will change and, and start taking on some of the things that I advocate when the employee demands it. And we're seeing some of that out there right now. But when the employee when the employee finally says, "I will not work in an environment where X, Y, and Z are happening," then X, Y, and Z will stop happening. 
And so I see, and I, when I talk about crazy, like that's what I see. That's what I would love to impact is, okay, like stop accepting unhealthy environments. Make the expectation that leadership is going to create an environment for you that's healthy and encouraging and loving and supportive. Right. We can do that. Right. Lo and behold, shocker, how nice that would be. Yeah. And it exists. But I'd love for it, it to does. be the standard, uh, the default, and not the exception. That would be a heck of a vision right there. Yeah. That's what I'm, it's really truly what I'm trying to do. Well, that's fabulous. I have to say, Mike, you are a profoundly interesting individual, and I appreciate you taking time out of what I assume must be an incredibly busy schedule to chat and share some of your nuggets of wisdom and book recommendations. I very, very much appreciate it. And I think you and the audience and all of us want to know about your three-book series. Um, what's out? Where can they find that? How can they support you? How can they purchase your books? When will they be available? All of that. Well, the the best place to connect with me is I created a website, michaeljmcfall.com, uh, and that's got links to all my social channels. And, you know, and then there's a fair amount of content on there that's not um, – that's new and different that I don't have anywhere else uh, in this little area called the classroom. Uh, and, and, but that's the best place to connect with me. And then of course, you know, we can, we can connect on all the social media channels and, you know, watch each other. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. No ominous undertones there at all. Oh my gosh. You know, I, the, I'm going to disclose, I don't do social media. Uh, I don't follow well, why it. Would I'm you? not on it. Um, why would you? I, yeah. I do post every day on all the platforms, but that is, it's just a medium for me to get content in the world. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't scroll through my phone. That's smart. That must be why you're so optimistic and also why you're not up at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> that must be why you're still focused. It's true. Because I think there's a lot to it that. It is a mess out there. Let me tell you, you're not missing much. Um, but again, super grateful. Thank you very much for, for donating your time. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Hope we can stay in touch. It's yeah. been great to get to know you. I look at you as an inspirational figure, and I will continue to follow your wisdom. I'll continue to watch you <laughs> from afar. Um, uh, and with that, the official podcast is over. You didn't give me an opportunity to thank you. Oh, you can thank me. Go ahead. We'll just splice it in. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the opportunity. My pleasure. <laughs> and now it's really over. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to another episode of the Beat the Often Path podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the episodes we've shared, it would mean a great deal to me if you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice or on YouTube. And of course, if you shared either the show itself or this particular episode with somebody who might want to hear it to help us grow the audience for the show, I would greatly, greatly appreciate it. So if you've been a passive listener all this time, I get it. I understand. There's no big deal with that. But it would really, really mean a lot to me if you'd leave a positive review and help me grow this show. So thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>